Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book and read it, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution. Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay, and I'm the Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer. Hot Politics examines the intersection between climate, the environment, and politics. This is Episode 14. Elizabeth May is back, but is her party. Elizabeth May holds the record for the longest-serving female leader of a Canadian federal party. She held the position consecutively for 13 years, from 2006 to 2019. She's been an MP for Saanich Gulf Islands since 2011. May is best known for her environmentalism, which began right after she graduated from law school in Halifax. She took on a corporate giant in the fight to prevent the spraying of Agent Orange in Nova Scotia. She worked as a senior policy advisor to Tom McMillan, the environment minister in the Mulroney government. With him, she was involved in negotiating the Montreal Protocol, an international treaty to protect the ozone layer and she was instrumental in creating several parks, including the Haida Gwaii in British Columbia. After spending six years as executive director of Sierra Club Canada, she ran for the leadership of the Green Party in 2006 and won. The last time I sat down with May was in 2019, when she announced she would be stepping down as leader of the Green Party to spend more time with her family. I remember how happy she was about closing the book on a hectic political life and beginning a new chapter. She was giddy with excitement. But, to use the old cliché, that was then, and this is now. Three years after our chat, May ran for the leadership again and won. Her decision came as a surprise to many and was met with both excitement and skepticism. So I sat down with her to explore why on earth she returned to politics and what this means for the Green Party and Canadian politics. Elizabeth May is the Green Party of Canada leader with Jonathan Pedneau. Elizabeth May, welcome to Hot Politics. Great to be here. Okay, so should I call you leader or co-leader? Sort this thing out for me. Call me Elizabeth. <laughs> makes it so easy but actually Mike technically right now the Green Party of Canada has a deputy leader in the Constitution and a leader in the Constitution and we are in the process of transforming with the 
you know, obviously the condition that the members will have to approve this, and if they don't want to, so be it. But lots of Green Parties around the world have moved from single leader to co-leaders, and I think our membership is very much supportive of that, especially since I was elected leader with a partner named Jonathan Pegnot, who is currently the deputy leader of the Green Party of Canada. I'm technically the leader. Probably too much information. <laughs> I remember one of the last times that I spoke to you, you told me that you were leaving, you were going to devote more time to family, you were looking forward to having more free time. And here we are back in your lovely office in the Confederation building, and I'm interviewing you as leader again. So what happened? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report of April 4th, 2022 happened. It was the first time that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had ever put in the same sentence, in order to hold to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. Now, that part of the sentence had never been said before. Now, the next part of the sentence was the more devastating part, which was global greenhouse gas emissions must peak at the latest well before 2025. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, said we're on a highway to climate hell, foot on the accelerator. So I was feeling a sense of a challenge. Am I doing the best I can with the time I have? Is this where I should be? And the next day, Stephen Gibo announced approval of drilling for oil deep drilling in the ocean off Newfoundland and Labrador for Bay de Noor. I thought, I guess when the government of Canada heard Antonio Guterres and IPCC talking about further drilling for new resources, new reserves of fossil fuels is moral and economic madness. They decided to just double down on that madness. I was, it's a longer process than I think I can explain in an interview, but it put me on a thought process of how can I be more effective? It occurred to me to leave Parliament. It occurred to me to work globally with groups on the, non the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. And when I talked to people in those movements and elsewhere, they said, you've got to be leader of the Green Party again. We need you to do that. And that conversation led me to saying, well, I, I know I want to. If I did do that, I can't do the same thing. It needs to be shared, distributed leadership, co-leadership model. So that's what happened. In the interim, while all of this policy stuff was going on and while Antonio Guterres was sounding the alarm and, and Bejanar was approved and all that kind of stuff, there were a lot of internal things happening within the Green Party that made lots of headlines. Your predecessor, Annemie Paul, had some difficulties. That's understating things a bit. And I'm wondering what your assessment is of that period of its effect on the Green Party of Canada? I know the effect on me was fairly devastating, but I think fair to share with you, and it's certainly an interesting dynamic that the Green Party is working on now, and we're really figuring out how to fix it. I will say that having worked to the limited degree that Annamie Paul spoke with us as leader, spoke to MPs and caucus, we weren't her priority. And protecting us from a member of her staff who called for us to be defeated and replaced with Zionists was not her priority. I have no insight or explanation as to why the leader of a party with only three MPs would decide that any one of us was dispensable and not worthy of her consideration. 
But that was my experience of someone for whom I had great, great hopes. You've talked about the fact that you're here to affect change, to be a voice of reason, to be a voice pushing for a future for your kids, your grandkids, et cetera. What effect do you think that this controversy had on the credibility of the Green Party and the ability of the Green Party to be that voice, that effective voice? Well, obviously, it was very damaging. I mean, at some point, I kept wondering why it was that the work that Green MPs were doing in Parliament was of virtually no interest to certain people in the media, but any rumor of any minor kerfuffle was worthy of being a big story. So obviously, we, we began to be treated as a party without credibility when we're, frankly, doing amazing work in Parliament. My Bill, Bill C-226, has now passed through the House of Commons. It's gone to the Senate. The bill is to confront environmental racism in Canada and promote environmental justice. I can't recall any big stories about a bill getting through Parliament to confront environmental racism. There have been some, certainly some news outlets, such as your own, have covered it more. But there's much more coverage if there's some story that goes to the general narrative of Greens still not getting along. We are making such progress. I'm so proud of all our volunteers and all our members, people who are so committed that they stuck with us through what, you know, certainly wasn't a good look. But I also have to say that when the planet is on fire, what the heck are people paying attention to other than climate work? I want to look back at one more thing, and that is Jenica Atwin crossed the floor. She was the, the Green MP in New Brunswick. It was a big deal. You had three sitting Green MPs. This was historic. She crosses the floor. Now, I know that you've sort of made amends because you were at a, new, a recent news conference with her. Jenica and I never had any conflict. Jenica, as she left, said, my heart is green. It'll always be green. Look, there's no point in thinking that our being together in a press conference to oppose small modular reactors, such as the two being proposed at Point LaPro, one of which involves stripping plutonium spent fuel out of high-level, highly dangerous radioactive nuclear waste by a company that has never done this before, but where the real contractor will be SNC-Lavalin. So that's not a surprise that Jenica hasn't changed her mind about nuclear power, and particularly small modular reactors that have never been tried before and have been assumed to be a great climate solution. And at the time, Paul Malley and I made a short comment when Jenica left to say that we were heartbroken to lose a dear colleague. There was no bad feelings there at all. More recently, the Green Party in PEI suffered a, depending on who you talk to, an electoral setback. And I'm wondering, how do you see that particular result? Because there was a time when Greens saw PEI as a possible beachhead, and now their seat count is reduced markedly, and there are those who feel that maybe the party is diminishing. Do you buy that argument? Not at all. I mean, the Green Party of Prince Edward Island just won 21% of the popular vote, elected two Green MLAs, and had eight second place finishes. So the vagaries of first past the post politics being what they are, the conservative premier of Prince Edward Island picked his moment, 
called a snap election, just like John Horgan did in BC, deciding to try to take it the benefit of first past the post. I would be very happy as federal leader of the Green Party of Canada to have a 21% vote for Greens across this country. It's doable, it's reachable. So I think getting more of the popular vote than the PEI Liberals, it does not suggest to me that this is a party that's lost its relevance in Prince Edward Island. It's very strong. And I would imagine that you would use that argument when you're talking about the Green Party of Canada, that now is a critical time think for your party to talk, to talk about the kinds of things that you're thought you're back as leader now to to do that very thing. And I'm wondering if you feel that the party is where it needs to be in terms of influence and in terms of its ability to help get things done. Oh, we're not at all where we should be in terms of influence. I, before resigning as leader in November 2019, I was generally routinely on the order of once at least every couple weeks or maybe uh, even sometimes once a week on the major national broadcasts. I used to be regularly interviewed. I'm not now. It's going to take time to rebuild, but it's it's coming back. I'll put it that way. I was looking at your Twitter page, and your pinned tweet says the following. Watching those in power fail to take real climate action has been painful. We've been given a clear deadline, and we have solutions available. With the right leadership and political courage, we can fix this. That quote is from September the 15th, 2019. Here we are in 2023. The sentiment in that quote, is that still accurate? Word for word. Nobody needs to tell a British Columbian that the climate crisis is real. And no one needs to tell an Atlantic Canadian after Hurricane Fiona. Nobody ever experienced anything like that. Port of Basque. The waves had never crested the rock that blocked the harbor that kept the harbor safe, which is why those houses could be perched on rocks and be safe. So we now have a convergence of pressing short-term realities. The vast majority of Canadians understand that climate is not a future threat to the environment, but up close and personal a threat to our security. And at the same time, the political horizon for the next election falls roughly after the moment that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us change is needed. So if anything, what I was saying in 2019 is more pressing now, but we still have, as David Suzuki has said, point out, politicians don't think about much except how do we get reelected? And how do we get reelected leads even good and bright people towards incremental change that doesn't rock the boat too much. What's missing is a belief that if you do the right thing, step up and exhibit real courage that says, okay, we are going to have to shut down the oil sands and it's going to be on this trajectory. It's not tomorrow, so we better plan for it. But but this has been the Green Party policy since um, 2019. The oil sands operations are going to have to be shut down by 2030, really substantially down. Whereas Stephen Gibo's climate plan includes an increase in oil and gas production because everywhere else in society somehow or other we're going to cut enough that it balances out. Well, it's obvious that political partisan electioneering and the science of the climate crisis are not aligned. What do you think of the job that Stephen Gilbo is doing? He's doing a good job for the Liberal Party. What does that mean? He's failing climate. 
and his decision to approve Robert's Bank expansion in Vancouver means he's prepared to accept extinctions. He's prepared to accept a devastating decision that was not supported by the findings of the impact assessment for political reasons. I'm very fond of individuals like Stephen Gibo. Very fond. I'm fond of most people I work with in Parliament. And I don't like having to use harsh language. But my grandchildren demand of me that I tell the truth. And this includes the grandchildren not yet born. I've got a lot of step-grandchildren whom I adore. But the truth of it is political cowardice, a, a failure to understand that there are no risks graver than what we face in the climate crisis. There's no larger priority in front of us. And to decide that incrementalism is okay because you get some good thing over here that might have been worse if you hadn't been there, people can rationalize. But if your policies are not aligned with holding to as far below two degrees as possible, I mean, that's the horrible thing about the April 4th statement, to hold to 1.5 degrees or below two, global emissions must peak and fall before 2025. That means it's a simple thing. Before 2025, countries everywhere, all of us, must stop adding and start subtracting. Many of our allies are well in the direction of subtracting. We're not. We are the only country in the G7 that has increased our greenhouse gases substantially since 1990. So in giving him a, if I can put it this way, a failing grade, are you not acknowledging that he has done anything positive? The problem is incrementalism, right? So yeah, you can say, well, that's great that we have new funding for electric vehicles and heat pumps and renewable energy, but overwhelmingly spending $30 billion of public money on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which only exists to bank on future production of bitumen, to mix it with a diluent, to put it in a pipeline for an inevitable spill on the BC coast, which can't be cleaned up because we don't know how to clean up bitumen in a marine environment. It's such an incredibly obscene decision to go ahead with the Trans Mountain Pipeline with public money on a project that the private sector, aka Kinder Morgan of Texas, knew was an economic loser. And if you push them, you will find, and I know it's the case because I've looked for it, any economic justification for building the Trans Mountain Pipeline. There isn't one. And it's $30 billion. It dwarfs substantially the various measures put in place on climate. I mean, it's not personal, obviously, but the record of the Liberals since 2015 on climate is one of failure. But couldn't one say that, well, what do you think would have happened if the Conservatives had gained power? Well, the Conservatives didn't promise that Canada is back. I try to be as fair as I can and thank Liberals and thank Stephen Gibo for good things that are done. I, I gave a very strong statement, for instance, in Parliament for the work that was done by Stephen Gibo in Montreal at the 15th Conference of the Parties on Biodiversity. But if there was one clear message out of Montreal, it was, we have to stop beating up on Mother Earth. We have to stop damaging ecosystems and start protecting them. 
and then they approve Robert's bank expansion. It's like one day you say we're serious about climate change and then you approve Betanor. And to hear my old friend Stephen Kibo explaining in Parliament, well, Betanor is per barrel less greenhouse gases than the oil sands and won't count against our climate target because those barrels of oil will be burned somewhere else. Again, that is moral and economic madness. Let me have a bit of climate honesty on Jagmeet Singh. I pushed him hard in Parliament, and as have other Green MPs. Never once gotten him to say he would shut down the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He won't say that because the NDP, unlike Greens, Greens provincially, Greens federally are separate parties. We are aligned on the same values. Rachel Notley is not going to let Jagmeet Singh say that we should stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline anymore than David Eby is going to let him say, if he cared to say it, and I've never seen a single personally indication that Jagmeet Singh is concerned about climate, but David Eby, new premier of British Columbia, is very wedded to expanding fracking, liquefied natural gas, gas that comes from fracking, massive releases of methane. The link between the NDP provincially and federally mean that the NDP is hobbled in speaking out on key things. If we're going to avoid runaway global warming and Canada's going to play a brave role, we have to shut down Trans Mountain Pipeline and ban fracking across Canada, as some provinces have already done. But, you know, Trans Mountain is going ahead. Carbon capture is going ahead. These are economic and political realities that are going to play out. So I guess I circle back to where we started at the beginning of the interview, which is the Green Party's voice, your voice as an opponent. Are you fighting a losing battle? No. God damn it. We better not be fighting a losing battle because it's the only battle that matters to have a livable world for our kids. I like the other parties a lot. Individual members of parliament in all parties are friends. I know some are struggling with this. I do not accept for one minute that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is an inevitability. They haven't even got half of it built and the hardest half is yet to come. We should never accept as citizens that a stupid decision is baked in stone. Stupid decisions can be reversed. People can stand up and say, I just looked at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change most recent report, and I realize that to keep my commitments that I made, whoever, fill in the blank, to ensure that our kids have a livable world, I'm going to have to cancel that project. And I think really... All the people who are now working in this crown corporation called Trans Mountain can be converted to a resilience agency. So here's what, what you're asking me. Do I really think we can save ourselves? Yes, I do. Do I really think Canada can play a global role in averting breakdown of human civilization as a result of climate disasters and the geopolitical insecurity and instability that goes with that? Do I think Canada has a role to play? Yeah, I really do. So why would I think for one minute that there's no hope of making that change? Every one of us from wherever we are, you might as well say to the individual, it's small environmental group in a community. Do you really think you're not fighting a losing battle? You, citizen, do you think you're not fighting a losing battle? Do we have to accept the idea that billionaires rule the world? I'm sorry, I don't accept that. And citizens and democracies can make a difference. And we happen to have a very progressive group of members of parliament in a number of the parties right now, 
people who claim to understand climate science, but find themselves up against not economic reality, but political difficulty for which they are too much the coward to stand up to it. But yet you've been part of that political process for a long time. You understand how this works. I do understand how it works. And I think political courage is rewarded by voters who are astonished when they see it. That's why people were so surprised when Joe Biden kept his word and shut down the Keystone Pipeline. Yeah, he promised he was going to. It was part of his electoral strategy. He said he would, and then he did. No wonder the liberals were shocked in Canada, because they don't keep their election promises on pipelines. Sitting across from you, I've seen you up close well, ever since you were Green Leader. Uh, you and I go back a long time. And I remember speaking to David Suzuki about his decision to retire, but still speak out. And he was angrier and he was just frustrated. And as I listen to you talk to me, I can't help thinking that Elizabeth May sounds angrier. She sounds more frustrated than I've ever heard her. Would that be an accurate assessment? Absolutely. I realized in the time when I had the opportunity to sit as, well, it's a huge honor, sit as a member of parliament and the parliamentary leader of the Green Party of Canada. And when I read the IPCC report, I realized I've been way too nice. I really love individuals a lot, and I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I love Stephen Kipo. I love Justin Trudeau. I, I love Christian Freeland. I regard these people as friends. I mean, I don't want to start mentioning the people I love because I'll leave someone out, but I love people in all of the other parties as human beings, as individuals I care about. But I owe it to Mother Earth and my children and the children of people I don't know to tell the truth. And telling the truth means expressing anger, but also calling people out for hypocrisy, moral failings that are no longer forgivable. We're going to have another election, I guess, in 2025 or sooner. How long are you going to stick around? I promised a lot of young people when I speak to them, I, I promise you I'm not going to die and leave you with an unlivable climate an unlivable world, which takes in fairness and justice and climate and all of the things that we have to fight for, and we have to fight for them simultaneously. There's a real opportunity here to make dramatic, transformational, disruptive change really fast. So my enemy is not any of the people I see in Parliament. My enemy is incrementalism. People looking and thinking, you can figure out your future by looking in the rearview mirror. We were in Glasgow at COP26 and heard somebody say, you know, the governments around the world have their foot on the fire hose of disruption. Governments aren't really working, well, at least Canada, our government isn't working to make sure that we avoid 1.5 or 2 degrees. They're working to make sure the fossil fuel industry can go on as long as possible while claiming to do climate action. It's cognitive dissonance at a level that just makes no sense. But what do governments have to do? Get your foot off the fire hose of disruption. Stop protecting the fossil fuel industry. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're going to stick around till after 2025. Well, at a minimum, two things can happen. Both are inevitable. Voters of Standish Go Violence decide to pick a new MP or I die. Not sure which is first. Well, I hope the latter doesn't happen. But I'm not going anywhere because as long as I have breath of life, I am not abandoning my grandchildren to what Thomas Homer Dixon calls the Mad Max world. There's a lot of fascination with dystopian post-Armageddon science fiction movies. I don't want my kids to live there. 
Elizabeth May, thank you very much. Thank you, David. That's it for Hot Politics Today. Tell us what you think of this episode or the podcast on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. That will make sure people find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. The managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. The associate producer is Zara Kozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks.